welcome listeners to the Winning Wellness Podcast. June is Post-Traumatic Stress Awareness Month, so we're going to zero in on that topic today. So PTSD, otherwise known as post-traumatic stress disorder, can happen to anyone, and it's not a sign of weakness at all. So actually, about 8% of the population will have PTSD at some point in their lives. About 8 million adults have PTSD during a given year. So our group wants to help. And one way that we can do that is just by raising awareness. And that's what we're after today. So we have the pleasure of hosting Drew Martell, Chief Clinical and Training Officer with Foundation to Crisis Services. What's up, Drew? Hi, thanks for having me. Absolutely. So I was actually able to um, attend one of Drew's Assist Suicide First Aid training courses. So he and his team led this last fall and impacted me in a very big way uh, and definitely made an impact on what I can offer our employees as well. So fortunate to have met Drew in that way. He has also led a workshop for us, uh, our managers and leaders here at UFG. Uh, just simply about suicide education in response, in response to an event that we had. So we're fortunate to have his partnership and Foundation 2's partnership as well. So all very powerful and impactful. And again, welcome. A little bit about Drew. He has dedicated his career to developing and presenting on crisis intervention and suicide prevention at both state and national conferences. His work has been instrumental in the development and expansion of several crisis intervention and suicide prevention initiatives here in Iowa. Drew's expertise includes developing crisis intervention frameworks, the development of co-responder model, care coordination for Iowa's Zero Suicide Initiative Project, and helping to develop one of the first mobile crisis programs in the state. Drew is also a site surveyor for the American Association of Suicidology, demonstrating his commitment to ensuring the highest standards of care in the field. In addition to his work at Foundation 2, Drew provides therapy at Meadowlark Psychiatric. And Drew is a military veteran who lives in Cedar Rapids with his wife, Anna, daughters, Madeline and River, and son, Ellis. He's also an avid runner, and I've just learned this. He's ran a 50-miler in April and is scheduled to run a 100-miler in September. Best of luck to you on that. I'd like to dive in more of that later if we can. Thank you. That's awesome. So before we dive into our conversation with Drew, our disclaimer as always. So our employee well-being resource group is not experts or therapists. We are not licensed in the field, but Drew is, and we're happy to hear from him today and guide us through this conversation. So Drew, tell us a little bit about your professional background and what's led you to where you are today, if you can, so our listeners know. Yeah, well, uh, thank you for having me out here today. Excited to come and talk about this topic with you all. Um, a little bit about my background. It's a little unusual. Um, born and raised in Cedar Rapids. Um, went into the military right out of high school. Came back. Um, didn't really know what I wanted to do. Ended up getting uh, my undergraduate at Iowa and then going on and getting my graduate degree at Iowa um, <clears throat> in social work. Uh, became a licensed independent social worker or mental health professional under Iowa Code. And have been at Foundation 2 for about 10 years um, where I've overseen... Um, an array of crisis intervention services. Um, on the back end, I've done a lot of work in suicide prevention, suicide intervention, um, as well as some consultation around suicide. And then um, really have obviously loved my time at Foundation too. And uh, they're going to build a statue of me there because I'm like a permanent fixture at this point. <laughs> um, and uh, in addition to that, I do some private practice work, um, but with a pretty limited um, kind of client case because of my full-time job. And then I um, I look at crisis centers for the American Association on Suicide to see if they can uh, become licensed to answer something like the 988 Lifeline, which uh, just rolled out and rebranded here last summer. And so just coming up on a year of the 988 Lifeline being 
being fully live nationally across the United States. And so, uh, so yeah, my background really runs kind of a, a unique course in terms of uh, what folks tend to do with, with kind of my professional credentials. Um, but, but the biggest part of it has been crisis intervention services. Sure. Yeah. What would be the most rewarding part of what you do? What's your favorite part of it? Well, there's a, there's a lot of rewarding parts to doing this, this type of work. And there's a lot of frustrating parts to doing this type of work. Um, from time to time, uh, you get, uh, to hear from individuals you've worked with who are very grateful for, uh, the care that you provided to them or the resources you provided to them or the support you provided to them at a moment when they're particularly vulnerable. And, uh, that holds, uh, a, a lot of meaning, uh, in, in terms of, I, I can't imagine most people in their careers, uh, get that type of feedback ever. And so right. even if it's, even if it's just once in a while, it's pretty meaningful feedback to hear directly from someone that you were able to work with again, when they were, um, when they were very vulnerable and when people are in crisis, they're very vulnerable. And so it's a, a unique relationship to show up and be someone they don't know most of the time, um, provide support with them in a really intense and vulnerable state. And then you're out of the picture again yeah. and you might never see them again. And so when you do, and you hear from them, that's pretty special. Right. To know that's came full circle, to know you made that impact in is, yeah, I'm sure very rewarding, helps propel you forward, especially in times that are not so fun. And so what are what do those times look like or what are some things that might be a frustration with what you do? Well, people are frustrating. Yes, they uh, are. There are, <laughs> we are a, a complex species and um, we, there is absolutely no moment in crisis work where you've seen it all. Um, and so uh, you're seeing people in all sorts of permutations of crisis, trying to support them, um, but also the, you know, the deep feeling that many of us in this field have to fix problems for people, which, of mm-hmm. course, we cannot do. And that's not our jobs. But when you're out on someone who is particularly vulnerable or struggling, you so badly want them to feel better. And most of the time, you don't know how to make them feel better. Right. Um, You wish you did. And, you know, the number of times in therapy where clients come in and they say, "Um, I don't I don't want to be depressed anymore. And, And you have to tell them if I knew how not to be depressed, I would put it in a book and everybody would buy it. Uh, and so, you know, you always you always want to make people feel better. And there's challenges around that, depending on the situation that they're in. Sure. Absolutely. I can see how that would be frustrating, too. But, yeah, you are making an impact and the work you're doing does matter. So thank you for all you do. I cannot cannot fathom what that would be like. But um, de- we definitely want to learn more. So we're here to talk a little bit about the specific topic of PTSD. So let's kind of start there. We hope that it helps anybody who, who may possibly be suffering from PTSD or loved ones who are helping somebody through that. So our, our group talks about this all the time. We never know who we may be impacting. Uh, we hope this helps somebody. So let's just start maybe with um, talking about what even is PTSD for those that aren't super familiar with it and what can it look like? So uh, kind of an interesting disorder in terms of the, the mental health professionals use a book called the uh, Diagnostical and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Um, or the DSM-5, the fifth variation of it is what we're currently on. And so um, all of the diagnosable uh, mental health syndromes are found within that book, including PTSD and the um, criteria for which um, a mental health professional uh, uses to diagnose an individual. Um, On the surface, it's kind of self-explanatory, post-traumatic, so after trauma, stress disorder. Um, But it's more complicated than that, and it has a pretty unique history. And so... um, 
really in in World War One is where PTSD first first came onto the field. And I actually want to say a caveat here, and that is, um, I'm, I'm going to talk initially about the military, but you absolutely don't need to have military experience to have PTSD. And I okay. think sometimes that's a, a misconception, but it it really came under the microscope of mental health professionals during um, during the first Second World War, and it, it kind of became codified as a disorder following Vietnam due to a lot of lobbying by veterans, so in the 1980s. But in World War I, um, soldiers on the front line in Europe started to use terms like shell shock uh, or war neurosis um, to describe an, a constellation of symptoms um, that were both physiological and psychological. And uh, initially, these symptoms confused military physicians. They, they, they really had no concept of this at the time. And there were a lot of uh, debates about what was happening. And the reason it kind of earned the name shell shock by soldiers is because the belief was initially that all of the shells being used, uh, the concussive rounds, which had never been seen before, um, I think on the first day of Verdun, the Germans fired one million shells. Um, and so soldiers were convinced that this was causing brain damage, microscopic concussions. Mm-hmm. And so that's why they called it shell shock. Now, Psych- early psychologists and psychiatrists looked at this and uh, found that it resembled what they were calling neurosis at the time. It's not a term we use in the mental health field anymore. Sure. And they would call it war neurosis. Um, and so th- these were actually early indications of shell shock. And if you read these, uh, of, of PTSD, sorry, and if you read these descriptions from World War One, they sound pretty pretty much like what you would see today. Okay. Um, soldiers who... Um, couldn't sleep, had nightmares and flashbacks. Um, soldiers who came back from the war, quote, different than mm-hmm. when they went to the war. Soldiers who would sit down in a trench and refuse to fight and not be able to to speak. Um, shaking, trembling, uh, uh, just kind of the classic PTSD symptomology. Um, but again, as I mentioned, it wasn't until the 1980s, I think 1980 exactly, when PTSD was added into the DSM, I think it, I think it's third version. Mm-hmm. Um, nobody listening to this quote me on that, but <laughs> I think it was the the third version where it first came out as a uh, an official diagnosis. And now, I think when it was a f- originally added, the uh, various professionals that kind of created the criteria were thinking more in the realm of like massive catastrophes, like wars or or car accidents, um, but due to really remarkable advances in our understanding of trauma um, since the 1980s, and the advances have been massive since the 1980s, just like they have been in most things. Right, right. Um, you know, we, we now have a much better understanding of what can cause, um, what, what trauma is and isn't, and what can, can lead to PTSD. Um, though, you know, one of the unique things about PTSD as a diagnosis is in the DSM, it really lays out external circumstances that must be present for the the disorder to be diagnosed, and that that primarily involves um, serious threats of harm to yourself, uh, perceived threats sure. of harm to your to your life, um, as well as um, really uh, traumatic experiences like a sexual assault or something like that. But there's also uh, a quantifier that uh, you can also acquire PTSD through um, the experiences of a family member or friend describing okay. to you something that occurred, and or um, certain professions. Uh, through kind of habituation to circumstances like EMTs or, or law enforcement officers who might be around really awful situations frequently might develop PTSD, um, not necessarily through one singular experiment, which okay. is, or experience, which is also worth noting, but through repeated experiences, um, to, to environmental conditions that, uh, that can precipitate the onset of post-traumatic stress disorder. 
Interesting. Wow. That's, I would have not known like the history of that and where that comes from makes sense. It can look differently and it can affect anybody in in different ways. So what is um, something that can help an individual that might be going through that or somebody that may be going through that, that don't know that they have it or that it's not diagnosed? Um, Maybe let's start there. What, What would that process look like just to get that diagnosis and what would be the benefit of diagnosis? That's a great. That's a great question, and a, and a really good point worth making is, um, of course, this this syndrome can impact anybody, um, regardless of background. Uh, it can, it, like like many of the mental health disorders, it, it crosses all cultures, um, socioeconomic status, um, demographic background. Um, regardless, uh, the first off, let's talk about the benefit of something like a diagnosis. Yeah, and so a diagnosis really is done. When an individual goes in, in the mental health field anyway, and it's a little different because I think when we think about diagnoses in the outside world, we tend to think of, uh, we tend to be pretty used to a medical model um, where we go into a quick care and maybe they take a a swab of the back of our throat. They run through some Mm -hmm. symptoms or a blood test and they come back and they, they say, here's what you have. Yep. Yeah, well, that's what uh, I would think too. Yeah, yeah. Uh, nothing quite like that in the mental health field. It, it would be interesting if we could do that. So instead, what mental health professionals are left to is... Um, putting symptoms together and experiences together and then adding those up with behaviors that are kind of lumped in the DSM and saying, well, your behavior, your experiences physiologically and psychologically um, really meet this criteria. And so uh, what a person would find, what one would find regardless of the reason they presented at a, a mental health professional is that their first session would be a mental uh, a mental health assessment, an intake, where uh, the, the professional, the mental health professional would collect information, basic in- information, um, stuff like, you know, age and background, psychiatric history, medical issues, medical traumas, um, experiences, primary complaint. And through that conversation, that initial session, which usually lasts about an hour, um, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, that professional would start to conceptualize a diagnosis. Okay. Um, and so in the, in the case of PTSD, if a client came in and said, I, you know, I'm having these symptoms um, and I'm not sure what, what's going on, you know, that the professional if they suspected PTSD, would try to align what what that person was experiencing with the diagnose, diagnostic criteria for PTSD. Okay. Um, and then the benefits to uh, diagnosis, there's a couple. The first one is it can help somebody better understand themselves. Yeah, And so absolutely. some people feel relieved when they find out what their diagnosis is because it helps them make sense of the experiences they've had internally. Um, a lot of a lot of the symptoms of PTSD are private experiences. And when mm-hmm. I say private, I mean they happen inside of us. People don't know you're experiencing them unless you communicate. Now, there are also physiological symptoms to PTSD, sleep disturbances, waking up, sweating, um, uh, increased startle reflex. Maybe uh, you, you can think of a classic example like um, someone who survives a shooting um, becoming easily startled at fireworks sounds yeah. or loud cars or motorcycles or something like that. Um, and so it can provide... Uh, a level of of support in and of itself and that a person can better understand themselves. In addition to that, it allows the mental health professional to start to piece together a treatment plan mm-hmm. uh, based on uh, what we know to be a f- effective treatments of PTSD. And then in addition to that, referral to appropriate resources such as a psychiatrist for um, 
medication. And there are some medications that are um, considered effective at treating PTSD. So sure. really the first step is getting that diagnosis. And where would one go to get diagnosed? So if someone is kind of listening in perhaps and notices, man, I do have some patterns or I have been through a very, very traumatic event and it, it might be good for me to go talk to somebody about this, where would one go or where would one start? And, you know, we can be specific to this area too, if that's helpful as well. So, yeah. So um, there are a um, a number of mental health providers in uh, in Eastern Iowa in the Cedar Rapids area, um, and really any uh, any licensed therapist could diagnose PTSD. Now, there certainly may be some therapists who specialize in it mm-hmm. um, and are uh, you know uh, more prepared for the treatment end of it. But really, any any mental health professional uh, usually that's going to be a therapist. Although occasionally it could be a psychologist as well as a psychiatrist. Okay. They're also mental health professionals. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, I- any one of those individuals could could open that doorway to a diagnosis. And again, usually that first session is just an hour, and it's where you get to to tell a little bit about yourself to that that mental health professional who is both collecting data and trying to support you um, in terms of building out what your needs are. Definitely. Yeah, that's that's just great to know. It's good to know that just paths forward are always good to focus on too, where you know that in many people, like you said, experience some of these symptoms who haven't all been through a common event. It can look very different. So if somebody has been through a traumatic event, um, that doesn't necessarily mean they have PTSD either. It could be something completely different going on as well. So that's... um, it's, it's complicated. The brain is complex. So it definitely remembers things and every person's response can be different. That, that's a super important point. And actually, I would say uh, PTSD and any traumatic experience is less about the event itself and far more about the perception the individual puts on the event. And so, uh, you know, as an example, we could we could talk about something like a divorce. And one could imagine that you have two friends in your life, one gets a divorce and um, it's a, it's a, it's a celebratory moment. They go out for champagne with their friends and they celebrate um, because they, they wanted that marriage to end. On the other hand, one could think of a friend who goes through a divorce and is devastated for years and needs treatment. And so we actually can tell very little about, um, about the potential psychological impact an event has on a person from the event itself what it comes down to is what that person perceived from that event, what the event meant to them and um, what meaning they took from it. And so um, absolutely just because someone is around something traumatic or experiences something traumatic um, or what we might objectively call traumatic doesn't mean they'll get PTSD. And in fact, um, it might only distress them to a limited degree. And at the same time, something that I might not myself consider a crisis, another person might say is a crisis to them, because their world is different than mine and the meaning they take from it is different than mine. Sure. And so um, it's it's a very uh, individualized experience. Yeah. Yeah, that's good to remember, too, just in connecting and talking with different people. Everybody's experiences and everybody's past is so different. So it's good to recognize that and to know that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. really important. It's especially important, I think, with kids. Um, oh, yeah. You know, even though that's not our main topic, I, I you know, doing crisis work with children, sometimes the events that they uh, state as being particularly meaningful to them or a crisis to them really wouldn't even fall on the radar of most most adults. But then I have to remind myself that kids have a world which is much smaller than mine. Yeah. And so an event that to me might seem trivial or might not be that important can be a huge, uh, huge to uh, especially like a teenager. And so, uh, again, we always are trying to focus on I, you know, I, I can understand that, that this event was big and, and whatever, but I want to know what it meant to you. I want to know what you experienced Um 
within you as that was happening, what meaning you took from it. Absolutely. That perspective is really important and just helps with a treatment plan. And what would, what are some examples of what that treatment plan may look like? You spoke briefly about that in connecting with a psychiatrist, licensed therapist, you're going to get connected with that specific plan. Um, obviously medication could be a potential, but what might that look like? What might um, a professional prescribe to help decrease some of those symptoms uh, that weigh heavy on individuals? So, uh, you know, I always, with therapy, I always uh, think that I'll really understand what I'm doing. And most of the time I leave a workshop or a training and I don't fully still understand, you know, uh, how therapy works. Being a therapist myself, it's complex. It's complex. And uh, there's a lot of moving parts. But um, there are some, uh, actually, a number of of pretty common therapy um, protocols. Uh, that are evidence-based with something like PTSD, the most the, the standard and the most well-known and well-cited well is cognitive behavioral therapy. Yes, I've heard about that, and I want to know more about that if we can, just briefly. It's yeah. been something that's being talked about a little bit more even in this area as well. So, yeah, that's that's interesting. Yeah, so cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, really the – probably the, the, the form of therapy that has the most robust evidence basis behind it. It's also been a building block for several other therapies um, that are quite well known now. One of them, dialectical behavioral therapy, um, acceptance and commitment therapy. Um, Cognitive behavioral therapy um, has its origins under a guy named Aaron Beck. It's both simple and as complex as, as you really want it to go. But when you think about it, again, in the title, cognitive behavioral therapy. And so a CBT therapist, cognitive behavioral therapy, CBT for short, Mm -hmm. is really going to look at how your thinking influences your behaviors and how your behaviors influence influence your thinking and how your feelings and emotions play in that as well. And so there's some things therapists do call the cognitive behavioral triangle, um, but they really want to know about the interplay between thoughts and behaviors because the two two are really important. And so sometimes modifying behavior can change thoughts and sometimes uh, challenging thoughts. So they have techniques called cognitive reframing, cognitive challenging, cognitive refocusing, all sorts of cognitive, cognitive yep. um, tools that they use. But uh, changing changing the way we think can change our behaviors and changing our behaviors can change our thoughts. And so they really focus on that. And uh, depending on, you know, one of the questions one, one would have, a therapist or a mental health professional would have for someone struggling with PTSD is, um, how does it impact you? Mm-hmm. And so, mm-hmm. um, for instance, if the person isn't sleeping, then you're probably going to utilize a therapy um, specific to sleep. Uh, and there's, believe it or not, there's cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia, CBTI. Wow. Um, and so in addition to that, uh, there's a, a type of therapy called exposure therapy that also can be employed with something like PTSD, where in a safe environment, the individual is um, basically exposed to certain environmental conditions that seem to uh, uh, bring forward that PTSD response, okay. um, but they're doing it with, again, with a, a therapist who's working with them across time and space, and they're gradually increasing the exposure in sure. a very safe environment. Um, but that might be uh, another way um, that uh, that uh, PTSD is treated yeah. from a therapeutic perspective. Then there's also uh, various types of cognitive therapies or uh, talk therapies, more traditional talk therapies um, that uh, are based on insight and, again, uh developing tools to manage the symptoms when they arise. Okay. So so maybe you come in and you say, you know, sometimes I have this response when I'm in the grocery store mm-hmm. and it's really impacting my ability to manage that. Well, the therapist is going to work on interventions to help address those specific situations okay. um, in which PTSD is coming up. But it's it's very treatable. Um, and That's the wonderful news. Yeah. yeah. And uh, 
the VA, especially I'm going to mention the VA, um, Veterans Affairs, um, has really piloted um, a lot of the treatments on PTSD, um, again, to work primarily with veterans coming back from um, Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation I- Iraqi Freedom. And so we've seen some really um, amazing uh steps in terms of treating PTSD. And, and right now, um, these are all in uh, the research phase. And so yeah. I'm not advocating for them um, or, or, uh, or the other side of that. I'm not, I'm not pushing against them. But we've also seen um, really interesting research into things like ketamine and psilocybin to treat, uh, to treat PTSD as well. And there's some um, interesting research happening at the yeah. academic level that shows promise uh, in the future in terms of, uh, of working with the brain and um, changing some of those neural pathways that might have been impacted by like a traumatic experience. That's wonderful. It's good to know we're evolving and we're taking that treatment plan seriously and kind of not having blinders on as to what the possibilities are and treating, you know, any PTSD is they don't all look the same. So that's really good news. How can we support, how can our listeners support, how can we support those that might be experiencing PTSD? What is a great thing to remember as a loved one or family member of someone who might be going through this? That's a, that's a great question. And I think, um, you know, there's several several ways, and you know, one thing worth mentioning too is that with most people, many people, I'll say many, not most, mm-hmm. um, who walk in the door for therapy, um, it it is pretty common to not have just one mental health diagnosis, right? And so, oh yeah, sure, uh, and and that would be common with PTSD as well. And so, if you are experiencing something like PTSD, it makes sense that you might become depressed. It makes sense that you might uh, it might compound or exaggerate generalized anxiety. And, um, and in addition to that, we know that, uh, people will do what they have to, to, to feel better, to fix their problems. And so substance use, um, isn't uncommon with a diagnosis like this sure. as well, because, um, again, people try to fix their problems, um, so they can live a happy and healthy life. And so, um, y- you know, when you're supporting an individual with a PTSD diagnosis or suspected PTSD, um, or, or, you know, just a, through a trauma experience, it, it's an individualized, it's individualized support. So knowing the person and knowing what they need, it's okay to ask a person what they think they need in those moments and have those, those conversations with them, um, being patient, uh, with something like a PTSD diagnosis, uh, understanding, um, I'm, I'm going to use the, the environmental conditions that compound it yeah. and then, uh, making sure you're sensitive to those. Uh, you know, if, if, it, if your loved one, um, I'm going to go back to the, the classic example of fireworks. If yeah. your loved one is startled by fireworks and then, then being respectful to that on, on the 4th of July and, and, and doing what you can to minimize that if, if it's within your control. Um, in addition to that, you can, you can ask to attend a therapy session with your, your partner if they're seeing, or your friend or a partner, whoever you're supporting, if you feel like that would be, um, helpful. Um, you can ask them, uh, if there's anything they've learned in therapy that you can use to oh, support cool. them. I like that. Yeah. And, um, and they can certainly have that conversation with their therapist as well, that they have a support system who's wondering ways that they can, um, they can, they can help them. But I would also say, like, if you have someone in your life who's struggling with any mental health syndrome, learn about it. Um, you know, yeah, we, it's we, powerful. It's powerful. And there's so many great resources out there now available to us. Um, and they're intended for supports. And so I, I, I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but I know there are some national organizations that specialize in PTSD. And I guarantee you that if you were to go on their website, they would have a, uh, a list of things for, um, for supports. Um, and education for supports. And so um, to me, if there's someone in my life who's struggling with something, it starts with learning about it and then um, and then asking them um, how I can best help them and how I can best be there for them. Um, and I think it's also okay to tell someone like, uh, I don't know what to do entirely. 
but I want to be a support to you. What are ways that I could support you? What might that look like? And also knowing that that changes across time and space. Um, But those are all, those are all ways that I would, um, that I might recommend supporting someone with PTSD or any, any mental health, uh, any mental health condition. That's wonderful. The common theme there I'm hearing is just to help them feel as though they're not alone. Very important. Uh, just to know they're not in that journey solo, which is really good too. Um, how can we as UFG and our listeners support, support foundations to efforts? So soon uh, you guys will be our downtown neighbors. So going to join the downtown district here shortly. I think you said in the fall, uh, but how can we just as partners in health and advocates for mental health support what foundations two is doing you guys do great work well uh i I appreciate that um you know foundation two uh provides an array of services primarily in the realm of crisis intervention so we certainly see ptsd um right now uh, foundation two is answering the uh 988 lifeline uh formerly called the national suicide prevention lifeline um, Which is 988, correct? Yep, 988. Perfect. And yeah, and we've answered that since its inception. Um, we also answer the State of Iowa Crisis Line, uh, Your Life Iowa, and we provide mobile crisis services and um, several other crisis uh, intervention services in eastern Iowa. And so uh, when, when, when I'm asked, you know, how, how people can support that type of work, I think one of them is, is simply by letting, letting people know about the service. If you know someone who's struggling, um, one of the best things you can provide to them first and foremost is just the 988 number. And um, I think it's worth saying here that uh, part of the reason that um, the name of the lifeline was changed from the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline to the 988 lifeline was because it was really important to SAMHSA that people know that they don't have to be having thoughts of suicide to call the lifeline. Okay. That you could... and, And so... A person who's struggling with PTSD, a person who's struggling with depression or anxiety can absolutely call the lifeline and start getting connected there. It's also, in in my mind, the least intrusive way to get help. Absolutely. Because you can just call from your house. Uh, you don't even have to take your your slippers off. If I don't know if people still wear slippers. Um, but if, if you, you might, that's okay. It, yeah, if you might. And if you do. You're out there. We yeah. see you slipper people. We see you slipper people. <laughs> uh, you don't even have to take those off. And you can connect with um, a counselor who can, who can start trying to help you um, identify supports. Uh, when you, you mentioned earlier, you know, about resources in the area, to be, to be quite honest, when it comes down to accessing mental health support, just like medical support, what insurance you have sure. is, is something that a lot of providers will want to know because some providers take certain insurances and they don't take others. But other than that, for most people going in for something for, for therapy, you just owe your copay, whatever your medical copay is. That's, that's what most people end up paying for, for therapy. And then the therapist, when they, when they, Diet, kind of uh, build up that treatment plan um, in collaboration with you. It'll be, do we want to do weekly sessions? Do we want to do every other week sessions? Mm-hmm. And there are either, even people who go out to at once every three weeks, once a month. Usually with a psychiatrist, you're going to see them every couple months, although they might want to see you more often early on. And those sessions are usually shorter and they're more, um, they're more tailored to uh, the effects the medication is having on you. Um, but uh, that that wasn't a direct answer to your question. That kind of went it's down. It's all good to know. Okay, a, a really. gravel road there. But uh, I would say letting people know about the service. Um, Foundation Two has some uh, uh, great, great kind of uh, fundraising events. Uh, we just got done with Putts for Prevention here yes, in Cedar Rapids. It's a fun one. Yeah, and I, I think they're going to do a, a smaller secondary version in Marion here in the fall. And so if that uh, with some with some unique, uh, hopefully some unique uh, uh, prizes. And so, nice. yeah, if that interests you, uh, that's a great way to uh, to support. But uh, but again, getting the message out is as 
is really the important part. We we know that there are people out there struggling all over our communities, and and many of them aren't aware of the services available to them. And so we try to talk about those services, and we try to to reassure them that it is a a safe and um, and gentle way to get help is through like a crisis line or yes. crisis intervention services. Wonderful. That's so good to know. And that's what we're trying to do here too at UFG is just continue to talk about those resources, build partnerships with you and people like Foundation to local resources that can help us do so because it is a, an amazing community, a great place to be. And it's nice to have that teamwork so we can support our people in the best way we can. Before we wrap, wrap up, wrap up, before we wrap up... <laughs> Um, I'm going to ask a question, Drew. Uh, just recently learning that you're an ultra runner. I got to know a little bit about that. How did you get into ultra running? I did my first trail half marathon in April. It was loud thunder. Um, it was aggressive. And trail people are a different type of breed, and they are awesome. So I'm just kind of learning trail running a little bit. But how did you get into that? How did you get into uh, that that distance, which I can't even fathom. I'm, I haven't even driven 100 miles in a while, let alone ran it. So that's awesome. Yeah, it's a, it's a, you know, I was uh, not a very athletic guy, not very good at much of uh, any sports. And the good thing about running is you just need shoes and you just put one foot in front of the other and eventually you'll get better at it uh, if you can avoid being injured, um, which actually <laughs> isn't entirely easy when you get up to, the, yeah. to that higher mileage. But uh, I think probably like a lot of ultra runners, you, you start out with something like a half marathon and that goes to a marathon and then you do a few of those and... Um, a few years ago, uh, actually, it was more than that now, a, a wonderful documentary came out called The Barkley Marathons, yes. The Race That Eats It's Young. Yeah. And I think that inspired a lot of people to um, to get into the sport. And so I did a, a couple 50Ks, and those went well. And so I moved up to 50 miles. And uh, then here in September, I have um, my first 100-miler in uh, Michigan. Uh, if I can make it there without an injury, I had a little bit of a uh, ankle sprain that set me back but uh, I f- I'm feeling pretty good right now. And so if I can make it through summer, yes. uh, I'm hopeful that, that, that uh, I'll land in, in Michigan there and be able to run it, at least give it a good uh, good attempt. That's amazing. We're sending you positive vibes for that race. Thank That's you. very impressive. And what does, just before we wrap up here, what does physical activity do for one's mental health? Talk a little bit about that. The truth is that it, for anybody with any mental health condition or or not even with a diagnosed one, but just with mental health, which we all have, um, being well is an art and it it really is. And when I think of being well in any, in any situation, I think of it like a piece of like a, like a pizza and there's different slices of that pizza. And that might include, you know, your spiritual side of you that might include nurturing side of you. Um, but that also includes physical activity and exercise. And it's, it's not just the direct impact that physical activity has on our mental well-being. It's things like improving sleep and, uh, confidence and all of these things interplay on one another. And so there is no world in which you can ignore certain slices of that pizza and and really be happy and healthy in, in, to your full potential. And so, um, so exercise is absolutely an important component of that. And I also think a, a lot of people who um, maybe get into exercise after not having done it for a while, especially some of the cardio stuff, I think uh, it's one of the few places where they few, feel a benefit pretty quickly. Um, in terms of, um, you know, running, a, running even a mile or two and, and right afterwards, just feeling good for the first time in a while. Yeah. And then in addition to that, running gets me outside and, uh, the research on nature and sunlight, uh, I'm like a, like a solar panel. Um, I need that sunlight to run. And so when I'm outside run, literally run, but when I'm outside running, yeah. my solar panel is actually recharging simultaneously and it just makes me a better, 
um, it makes me a better human. And so, uh, it's, it's not a fix all. Nothing is. But, um, if you are struggling with your well being, uh, I get it. I get how hard it can be. And, uh, taking care of, uh, I'm going to keep running with this metaphor, which I wish I hadn't started with, but taking <laughs> care of all those pieces of pizza, yeah. um, really is the only way. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm fully convinced of that. And so again, that includes things like sleep, spirituality, time with family, um, development, personal development and growth and curiosity. Um, all of those things really have to come together for us to, um, to reach our potential when it comes to being happy and healthy. And, um, and I also want to say that, you know, when you, when you exercise, you find out just you can push, you can grow on your own, kind of on your, at your own uh, rate. And uh, one of the things in, in therapy that comes up all the time is people having something in their life that they they feel they're growing in and having mastery over. We sometimes call it mastery activities. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the world is so complex, it's easy to feel like you just spin your wheels. And an exercise can be a place where whether you're you're lifting weights or running, you can see improvement and that can be really meaningful in and of itself. Definitely. Tangible progress. Yeah, you can definitely see that. I like when you said uh, being well is an art. Yeah. I really love that. And we do actually have um, like a holistic wellness approach uh, to our wellness program at UFG. We have uh, that holistic wellness model with those pieces of the pie, so to speak. And we we pride ourselves here on having resources in every bucket of well-being uh, so our people can really strive for that balance. So thank you for saying that. We view health in that same way here. So um, I love that. Drew, one thing that you'd like our listeners to take away from today's episode. Uh, I'd just like to say that uh, if you are out there and you are struggling with whatever your brain throws at you, and if your brain is anything like my brain, it throws an awful lot at me in any given day, week, month, or year, and probably about 60% of what our brains tell us isn't that helpful. Um, There are resources out there. Treatment is effective. Prevention is effective. Um, I think I read uh, on average adults in the United States wait somewhere around five years to get help for um, mental health uh, struggles. Um, We don't like that. We want it to be sooner. Uh, And uh, we really, uh, you know, again, if you're out there struggling, connect with someone um, today, tomorrow, ask for help. Uh, It's, it's not easy, but, uh, but it's effective. And, uh, and you probably deserve it. Uh, I should remove the probably you deserve it. Uh, (laughs) If you probably deserve it, uh, you still deserve it. You still deserve it. You still deserve it. And so, uh, you you know, whatever, whatever type of support you need, um, uh, it's worth it. So, uh, so yeah, pursue that. Thank you, Drew. Thank you so much. And we'll be sure to drop uh, some of those resources uh, in the information along with the podcast, too, so our listeners can go back on that. But thank you so much. Good luck uh, in your ultra. And we'll be thinking about you at Better You, Not Us, first of all. Um, But thank you so much, Drew. So helpful, so impactful, such great information, not only for our employee resource group that's sitting here right now, just in the wonderful presence of Drew and all the great information we learned today, but our listeners as well. Um, We just want to make a difference. So thank you for being here. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. Absolutely. Uh, Thank you for listening to the Winning Wellness Podcast. Please share this episode to inspire others to spread the word. Uh, If you or someone you know has an inspiring story to share, we'd like to hear it. So be sure to hit subscribe and join us next time for a real conversation around whole person health.
Just a reminder, all content and information in the Spirit Podcast from UFG Insurance are for informational and educational purposes only, and we do not constitute professional advice of any kind. Although we strive to provide accurate information, the information presented here is not a substitute for any kind of professional advice of any kind or professional client relationship. You're responsible for conducting your own due diligence to ensure you have obtained complete accurate information as may be appropriate or suitable for your specific needs and circumstances. The opinions or recommendations stated in the Spirit Podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of the company.